I forgot the flowers. It's the Movie Club Podcast. It's the Movie Club Podcast. We're talking Altman, Paul Thomas, Anderson on the Movie Club Podcast. It's a whole bunch of movie nerds who just want to be heard with some pedantic rants. So please sit back and relax with some beer or some crack. The Movie Club Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Movie Club Podcast. This is episode 30. This is a collaborative effort among a bunch of various podcasters around the movie blogosphere. Uh, We get together sort of like a book club and discuss a couple of very carefully curated films that have been picked out well in advance uh and now it's been Mm -hmm. over a year since the last show but since then uh the movies that we've decided to be discussing this week are robert altman's popeye and paul thomas anderson's punch drunk love now since this is sort of a, a book club style discussion there are spoilers we get into everything from plot to twist endings and the what have you's and the ins and the outs of everything so be aware of that probably you want to have at least seen the films before uh listening to the rest of the show so uh without any further ado let's just kind of go around the digital room and we'll introduce ourselves i'm the mc for the night i'll be bowing out after uh the introductions here but i'm andrew james from the Row 3 Cinecast, and uh, everybody else, head around the room and uh, introduce yourselves to the listeners. I'm Bob Trumbull. I also write for Row 3, as well as my own blog, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind. I am Jim Laskowski of the Director's Club Podcast. And Kurt Halfyard of Row 3. And I'm Matthew Price from Mammal. And uh, so I guess it's my job to... to we're going to start with uh, Popeye? Indeed. Okay, so uh, Popeye is a 1980 film by Robert Altman. Uh, stars Robin Williams. Um, uh, hugely budgeted, uh, f- by all measures, failure. <laughs> that was... Uh, that put back, significantly put back the careers of Altman and Robin Williams for several years after it was released. Um, but it is nonetheless kind of astonishing, um, and uh, and it, you know it was all it sort of famously uh, uh, filmed on the island of Malta, which was an incredibly uh, difficult thing to do, and there were a lot of like uh, uh, logistical reasons why the film had a, a, an insane, basically unmakebackable budget. Um, uh, but also, you know, gives the movie uh, uh, a weird finicky lasting quality um around this idea of taking uh you know with only really by today's standards pretty rudimentary uh movie making technology taking a comic strip uh an animated thing off the page and and out of cell animation and trying to get that life and bring it to live action uh which it which it does to varying degrees of success was that is that a fair way of uh, summing up that movie but worrying is right it it actually did make back its money it didn't make uh any money which is what the studio wanted but it did studio but i guess the weirdness of the movie the and the critical pile on of the movie kind of made it to be a perceived flop for paramount 
studios who who financed um, the movie uh, on the table uh, before we really get into Popeye and um, saying, you know, is anyone in the cult of Popeye that watches this movie all the time, or was this a a rewatch from childhood, or was this a first time watch? Um, maybe I'll start. Uh, this was a first-time watch uh, a couple of weeks ago when the topic first came up. Uh, I'm an Altman fan and just hadn't gotten around to it. Obviously, it was lower on the list given this critical uh, reviews. And uh, then watched it again just earlier today because it, there's, as Matt said, there are varying qualities to this movie, many of which I don't like, but many of which oddly are sticking with me, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah, this is actually the first time uh, seeing this movie since I was about 11 years old, and I had no really strong memories associated with it, not not with the gar- not with the cartoon or this film in particular, and I just never had any desire to revisit it. Um, recently, my co-host and I did an episode on Altman, but we just didn't uh, cover this for the similar reasons that Bob said. It just wasn't high up on the list of rewatches in you know Altman's filmography. And um, I've discovered recently too that he's become one of my favorite directors, despite many clunkers throughout his career. And um, much like Paul Thomas Anderson, I just love the fact that. Uh, these filmmakers make very strange and original films that to me just feel like big warm hugs of some kind and this is <laughs> a very strange movie that um, I'm surprised I, I, I managed to love <laughs> despite its many flaws so yeah in, in my case I've seen pieces of this movie all the time I've never watched it like at a to concentrate and fully sit down and watch it uh, from end to end. So I was kind of had a little bit of it's, I've always found it, 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 it it's, it's off-putting but compelling to look at at the same time. Like it, there's clearly, it's not funny at least to my sense of humor for most of the sight gags, but it does vaguely resemble the comic strip as, or at least the the Fleischer cartoons that I'm more familiar with as this character goes. Uh, but watching it from end to end, I I was all over the place. I, I was just fascinated by its utter weirdness. Like it is, yeah. I can't think of anything else that's like this. So I, I I can give it a lot of credit by just being what it is. So just utterly unique uh, in that sense. If there is a similar constructed musical or or even comic book movie or anything. I can't think of it, and uh, so by virtue of its originality, if if not its clarity all the time, I I, I found it a pretty compelling watch. Yeah, I, I I think I agree with most of that. So I also saw it for the first time pretty recently, and I also am a big Altman fan. And it also was like towards the end of of all the Altmans that I needed to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that's. I feel like in the context of what, going back to these movies now, that's probably going to be a common thread for almost everyone you know there there are what there are like 20 other Robert Altman films that seem more necessary than this right like yeah. are you going to watch this before you watch Nashville or California Split or the long like there's no point right there's so there's so many of them that I feel like it's just by 
even if it's, you know, I think it's got a lot uh, that I actually think recommends it, but it's still, you know, it's pretty way down that list for me. Um, and I think uh, it's, I really, you know what, I mean, on balance, I think I really liked it. Um, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm willing to forgive the last kind of 20 minutes of it, which I think are the worst 20 minutes of it. Uh, with the with the octopus and whatever, um, oh that octopus! Yeah. Oh man, oh man, <laughs> jeez. And, but but um, but it's also like you know, it's funny. It's like it, it, there's some story floating around that he really wanted to make Annie, and then the rights to Annie got swept up when they got the mu- rights to make the musical, and John Huston started making that, and so their idea was to make this instead. And it's it's sort of interesting to me because. Whereas Annie has this backbone to the story that actually inherently makes it a good idea for a feature film, there is no backbone to the Popeye story. Like, it's literally a series... The, the original shorts are just... They're a series of being really strong. Right? And that's... Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing he really wants. There's no... Like, he's he's got a girl that likes him, and he's got a, a guy that wants to beat him up. And it's like Keystone Cop stuff. And it's it would be like somebody made a mega budgeted feature film now of Laurel and Hardy, like there's no reason for that to happen, right? And the movie just kind of sits there and struggles with this idea of like we don't have a compelling thing that's going to make us want to watch this for two hours. But it keeps shifting into into sort of different, almost different styles. Like you said, there's the slapstick piece, and then there's the Altman-esque pieces with the slow-moving camera. Then there's the almost stage musical pieces, and the soundtrack is so very odd. Yeah. Because you mentioned Annie, and you expect, you know, the standard big show numbers in Annie, and this has very oddly paced songs, songs that are barely songs at some at some point. Yeah, there's so this weird them, mix right? of a whole bunch of different things. Even some subtle pieces of humor, which I don't find that funny either, but there's little subtle bits that sort of slide in there. So it's almost an experimental film at times, which is why I, I feel partial to it myself. Well, it begs the question, um, and maybe they didn't care because this was the 70s and it was Robert Evans, but like, who was this made for? There's, there's so many elements yep. that I feel um, like when Robin Williams is you know, just strutting through town as Popeye and he's the outsider, and there's just kind of this controlled movie studio chaos going on, um, and he has all these weird murmuring asides. I'm like, okay, that's clearly for adults because every one of those asides is him... It's very similar to Elliot Gould in, in The Long Goodbye, not being able to process California. And, and he just has, well, that's kind of weird. And he points it out and he moves on. It's just his way of coping uh, with it. But then, clearly, the slapstick and the rubber forearms and the, the overall look of the movie, it, I think, I think, was designed for children. Like, although children wouldn't... Uh, maybe they... Maybe you don't need a vocabulary to enjoy the slapstick, but I can honestly say, while I while I do feel it resembled the comics, I didn't find any of the slapstick funny. Like, and I like slapstick comedy. I it's it, it's not really in the language of, or or if it, it's it, I guess like the songs, they're all in a minor key of what yeah movie musical songs would be. The slapstick itself doesn't feel like Keaton or um uh. 
Chaplin or or, or any of the, the the kind of silent era, like when the when the cartoon or when the Popeye would have been, you know, sort of at the peak of the public conscious, uh, it feels it just. It, and I couldn't process that, at least not on a single viewing, um, to make that funny. It, I, I, I was, it was toxic to me, actually. But all the other stuff I liked. I, I liked the music, the musical, not belt to the back row. Like people almost mumble the songs. Um, yeah. But they're like that. Everything is food. Song is just so bizarre. It's that's it, almost it's like a dirge, yeah. isn't it? It, it, it's it's dirge-like, it, but it's also like Dadaist as well. Like the <laughs> lyrics themselves are. I, I, I guess he's, I guess there's a whole thing with the town being oppressed by the tax man, the commodore, and and everything, and everyone's kind of under the thumb of these arbitrary, goofy taxes, and that everything is food is kind of an anti-commercialist. Com- yeah, yeah. Consumer, yeah, that's whatever, that's Altman for you. I mean, he, he yeah. he's always inserting his political ideology in anything at any time, and he's very interested in ecosystems and outsiders showing up in strange. T- I mean, this it opens a lot like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. This is like the yeah. family-friendly <laughs> yep. version of McCabe and Mrs. Miller Completely at the beginning. It's the same color palette. It's Did very the brown. Way, the town yeah, is very muted. Yeah. In the same way before they make the movie, right? Like he starts the same. His whole methodology for making it is almost exactly the same. But these, I mean, like you, you said the um, uh, who's who's the writer? The the Jules Pfeiffer. Jules Pfeiffer wrote the screenplay. Yeah. Harry Nilsson wrote. Yeah, it's a no. It's the whole movie is being made by a bunch of now somewhat aging. Disaffected counterculture. Right, exactly. Right yeah. between between Jules Pfeiffer and Robert Altman and Harry Nielsen, like who is not who is missing from the anti-war movement? That's everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you throw in Van Dyke Parks as well, right? He was, uh, I think, yeah. the arranger for a lot of the songs. And yeah, it's funny. I, mean, we're, we're... He's, I think his his contribution is to is to put them into some kind of overall context where they sound like they're of the same thing, right? Because Nielsen's songs are just, they're just pop songs. Yeah, and I think that comes across in was the Blow Me Down song. It's like the second song in the movie. That sounds a lot more like a Harry Nielsen song. Yeah. The rest, you get little yeah. bits and pieces of it, but they seem to be just almost stripped apart and and almost torn from the tethers of music sometimes. It's a very, very yeah. odd soundtrack. But I, I'm telling you, if, if uh, you know, if, if like Hunter S. Thompson had worked on this, I wouldn't have been at all surprised. Not even a little. <laughs> and, and, and then, it, and then it, it does, again, echo the, the thing of, like, wow, who, like, what, who was smoking what at what time that thought this was the gaggle of people to get together to make a kid's film? Like, I, 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 I still don't know whether this was Altman, like, Gave a shit about this, or it was just because he, you know, he did so much TV over the years. Like, if it was just a, oh, yeah, I can work for hire. I can, I can do that. Like, no, I, I don't think this was him for hire at all. No, I don't think so either. I don't get that feeling at all. It, if anything, I think it was him trying to make up for. There were about three or four movies in a row there that had really tanked, and I think it was him trying to prove that he could still, you know, he he was a, a fairly big box office success in the mid seventies. Absolutely. I mean, oh, yeah. Nash is a massive success, and mm-hmm. he had other. You know, Nashville made money. 
uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I think, made quite a bit of money, right? And and I think he had done, like, has anyone else seen Quartet? Quintet. Oh, Quintet? Have you seen yeah, that? that's that's a movie. Mother of God. <laughs> okay. so, like, and then A Perfect Couple, too, around the same time. is. Yeah, and, a per- and actually, A Perfect Couple is a really interesting... It's funny, I've been thinking oh. about A Perfect Couple nonstop since I finished watching Punch Drunk. Really? Because they are way more similar than Punch Drunk is. Yeah, I, I, I guess so, except that A Perfect Couple is absolutely terrible. No, I it's great! Oh, I couldn't stand that movie. Oh, but that, that's really a different like movie. <laughs> anyway, we'll get, off, we'll get off on that when we talk about Punch Drunk. But, but um... You know, I think he. I think he wanted it to be a success. I don't. It doesn't feel like a movie where he's just phoning it in. It just feels like a movie that gets away from him. Well, he kind of announces it right up front. I mean, that first little black and white image of Popeye. He's actually saying, "I'm in the wrong movie," and then it cuts to you know the real <laughs> yeah. Popeye in the ocean. And there's no music over the titles. It's at all. grim. That's a grim opening. There's a yeah. lot. Of- <laughs> yeah. This is not a kids' movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Even just the final image with Bluto just swimming away all alone. I don't know. That's that's kind of a melancholy moment. My favorite just... description of Popeye as a movie is from, of all places, Vanity Fair, that called it a music a movie musical about a disfigured sailor in a dystopian fishing hamlet. <laughs> it's not inaccurate. Uh, it's not. It's not as grim. Oh, it's not as grim as that makes it sound. It's yeah. not grim. It's just it cannot keep the pace, the manic pace of what I perceive of the card, the animation cartoons. So you're trying to do these things with living humans, like the the, the punches and the falls through floors, and and it just doesn't have the sizzle. Everything felt. I guess it's kind of in that '70s era of somewhat languid, not in a hurry to get anywhere, shaggy dog kind of filmmaking. And and the animated stuff is sharp because you're not wasting any frames established anything. It's animation. Yeah. You go right along, and, right? And, you know, I think, like, I, the point I was making earlier, you know, those cartoons have a very specific aim, which is just to, like, set up a bunch of gags, and then those gags play out very quickly in about seven minutes. And that's that's all you have to sustain. And that's that's not a movie. No, but although this movie does feel like it is, and I'm I'm not familiar enough with the 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 comics to understand, you know, like but clearly they've cherry picked like the clairva- the clairvoyant sweet pea is probably some seer part of the run, and then the the treasure in Pirates Cove is another part of the run, or the his his um his father uh, there uh, Ray Walston, um, you know, and then the the whole engagement party feels like it's another... Like, they don't all come together. They're, it does still have that, we're going to entertain you in little chunks and then move on to something new. Like, the the whole boxing sequence probably could have been excised with no detriment to the film. Um, I found it to be quite awkward with uh, Olive Oil's brother. Yeah, I think it you know it adds a bit to olive oil starting to really like Popeye, I guess. But uh, other than that, yeah, it just adds on you know some gags on top of gags that just feel a little awkward. Um, I will it, say- at times that the movie is is almost like it's trying to be a Jacques Tati film in in some of the yeah. background stuff and like yeah. you said before, Kurt, the mumbling of um, of yeah, Robin. Williams. I can see that. Like well, that the, the mumbling is from the cartoons, right? 
Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the, and, the and cartoons serves, introduced that. Yep. Yeah, but also serves like you said. Is this must be for adults? That's exactly the same as in the cartoons. He's always almost swearing, so it is actually aimed at the adults <laughs> who are watching these movies before the before the feature. Yeah, I guess in the same that era of cartoons. Yeah, it did have the the two layers or levels or whatever. Yeah. Um, I will say this though, uh, Popeye does contain the single most perfect piece of casting possibly in the history of cinema, and that oh, yeah. is Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil. Like, I mean, she looks like the, the character. She sounds like what I think the character would be. Um, her when she's singing. And she, her eyes are rolling up into her head in this yep. quasi yep. on the verge of orgasm. It is. She has that whole musical number of Bluto being large, which I'm like, but she sells yeah. it. Um, I mean, she's coming right off the Shining. Like, she, I think she literally left the Kubrick yep. set to come and do this. That is 180 degrees. No kidding. She was, that was her nickname in high school, too, was Olive Oil, so I guess it was just Destiny. Was to play this role. But it's weird because she was kind of a regular collaborator with Altman, so it wasn't like they said, yeah. we have to use this. It's a perfect kind of thing. And I must admit, I like Williams. I think he's great. I think his energy and his overall body language is astounding. But the movie's really only compelling to me when Shelley Duvall is on screen. I'm not even the world's biggest Shelley Duvall fan of any kind, but I really do think that she owns the screen. Her her musical numbers are the most coherent in the film, even if they're sung way out of key, which, of course, is by design. Um, yeah. And uh, I just find her to be the most pleasurable thing. Just the way she's pulling on the wardrobes department's equivalent of what those cartoon shoes and things are. It, she makes it look effortless and natural in a movie that almost never looks effortless and natural. So yeah, I'm starting to like her more and more the more I see her. I mean, I rewatched Nashville recently, and she's in a very small part of that movie. But I, again, I loved every scene she was in, and her yeah, physicality she's... in this movie too. Like when the, there's she thinks it's a rattlesnake in the basket, just the way she's popping back Ooh, and forth there is. Yeah, exactly. yeah, no, she it's does that great. And now she's great in Three Women. I mean, that's oh, a, yeah, I think she won a lot of accolades for that performance, and deservedly so. I I think she's phenomenal in this too. I mean, I think uh, Rob Williams is pretty good. Like, because I don't know, like even just my preconceived notions of like, well, he has a tendency to go manic and out of control, and that's kind of his comic, you know, shtick uh, that you know people sort of have ragged on him for in the past. And here he's got a level of restraint throughout. I mean, you know, he's got sort of a quiet charm here and there, and he's got that interior language and mumbling that I think, you know, he just basically did Popeye and did it well without, you know, going over the top. So I was I was pleasantly surprised by that. Do you yeah, I think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Do you feel the movie kind of abandons him often? I, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's an Altman thing. Yeah, there's some detours, yeah. Like where, where he's kind of just sitting at a table while the rest of the movie kind of happens <laughs> around him? Well, because if he's not getting beat up or beating someone up, he doesn't really have a character. Well, he's but pretty he, sweet with the baby. He's pretty no, sweet. Oh, yeah, he is. No, he is. You're right. But, I mean, he doesn't... Popeye doesn't... is not a, a multidimensional... <laughs> <laughs> he, he is, you know, a guy that defends people from being bullied, and it's sort of like a very obvious... Like, 
you're right, he's on the sidelines, but but it's because he doesn't have like a lot of other character stuff that he can they can really make him do. So they're sort of stuck. I think one of the things about this movie that's that I find fascinating and I like watching it in it, but I think it's also kind of maybe like pushes the audience away a bit is that everybody, like you said, how good Shelley Duvall is, and she is really good and really specific uh, in how she's um, sort of, you know, taking on olive oil. But it's like everybody in this movie feels like they're acting in a different, slightly different style. Like, they just don't feel like they're in the same movie together. And that's unusual for Altman. Like, my my <laughs> normal sort of, like, thing that I can't believe he's able to do is to rope in, you know, a lot of performances that all are very different, but make them all seem like they're uh, interacting in the same movie. Like Nashville is sort of the best at that. But, you know, there's the, the there's really good scenes in the player too, with like with so many people, so many personalities, and it's so sort of seamlessly blended. And this movie just does not feel like it blends particularly well for me. It, it feels like a bunch of parts. Yeah, yeah I, would ag- I would agree with that more or less. I think like the, the only moment that sort of, you know, I had a had flashes of Altman doing that kind of, uh, you know, style was like the dinner scene around the table with everybody talking over everybody. Like that's sort of the trademark Altman uh, characteristic. You know, that everybody like talks over everybody. And I, I like I've I've realized recently too after watching some Altman movies, I do have to put the closed caption on. <laughs> like the beginning of I, I think like uh, I heard you know even Tarantino. Um, criticize Altman for his sound design and his sound mixing uh, for the beginning of McCabe and Mrs. Miller because you can't hear any dialogue. And so me putting on the the closed captioning actually really helped. And I did that for Popeye, especially at the beginning, because I I, I find his unconventional, like, overdubbing really cool. Like, I mean, I I guess a lot of his... A lot of Robin Williams' dialogue was done in post, apparently. (laughs) You you can tell that, though, and I gotta say that that really took me out of the movie even more sometimes, especially his little mumbling asides to himself. It Mm -hmm. struck me as being so obviously overdubbed. Yeah, especially in the beginning, you're right. So that... Maybe it's by design or or not. That uh, did not work for me much at all. Uh, But there's there's some odd scenes, though. You were just talking about some little cut-up scenes in the movie... Do you remember that one scene? It's early on where Robin Williams is in the bathroom, and he just goes, "Oh, to toilette, yeah, oh, to toilette, <laughs> yeah," and then it cuts away from him. It's it's so almost weird. meaningless, and it's not really funny, but it's kind of oddly memorable too. Yeah, they will. They let him mug at least. They let him mug for the camera. Um, they let the uh, the the guy from the guy always always know as the. Beast Raban from Dune, who plays Bluto, he gets to big time here oh, and mug um, for the camera. Uh, Ray Walston gets a little bit of that. I don't think he. I love Ray Walston, and I don't think he's very good in this. Um, and Agree. He doesn't he doesn't yeah. mm-hmm. sell it? It's a shame no. because yeah, I, I root for that guy. I think he's uh, awesome. Um, but that coming back to that dinner sequence, the thing that I like about that sequence, though, is that it's it's not just overlapping dialogue. It's like an overlapping series of sight gags, too. So he's actually applied yeah. his directing style to now the physical, and I don't know how they coordinated. I guess they had the luxury of they built this huge set. They own it. They can do whatever they want on it for as long as money is still there. Like, they don't have to, you know... Oh, we can only shoot here for a little while. Like, I guess, and I guess that's what makes this whole movie in general feel 
otherworldly, because it was actually mm -hmm. another world that they built, and I believe that that set still actually exists today. A bunch of those buildings are Yeah, still, I think yeah. so. Yeah. But, I, I mean, it, it allows for a certain amount of improv. I, is, I don't know if improv is the right word. I, I, I guess it might be. Um, but it also, they lose the thread of it. The, too well, many times a, it feels yeah. like a bunch of actors that just run into the room. There's a ton there. of there's a ton of physical improv going on with Bill Irwin and the other guys that are in that troupe of sort of background slapstick. Yeah, one of them is Dennis Dennis Franz. <laughs> I think is one of the one of those. Yeah, guys. yeah, Franz yeah, he's one of the toughs yeah, in the yeah. bar. Yeah. Yeah, but Bill Irwin's thing is this sort of weird um, uh, curatorial approach to comedy where he goes. He's like an archaeologist, right? He goes and digs up old bits and sort of brings them back. And like you were saying, it feels sort of. Um, like it's it doesn't feel like um, slapstick from movies. It feels like more like commedia dell'arte or like clowning stuff to me, right? Which is like even older. Yeah, when yeah. he when they punch his head down and he's kind yeah. of like like folded yeah. and he slowly yeah, that's all, that's comes all back. That's all nineteenth century stuff, right? It is. Yeah. And the hat gag is weird. Is that Bill Irwin doing the hat thing <laughs> yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah I think they never so. they never really. I, I assume it's some callback to the comic strip or something, because it's just such a bizarre like image. Happened, yeah, stuff like that happened in the animation all the time, right? Because people can be stretched and squashed. So you do stuff like that. But his that's his whole thing, is like, to basically be, you know, like like a preservationist for all of this old-style uh, pantomime comedy stuff. And and it's like, I feel like Allman just went, I don't know, go do whatever you want. <laughs> if you get in the shots, that's great. And do you guys think of Popeye as, like you were saying earlier that he's two-dimensional and there's not much you can do with the character, um, but I had a, I had a, a philosophy uh, professor in university that always, that, that was his favorite go-to bit of pop philosophy is the I am what I am uh, thing, and <laughs> the whole idea of, like he is kind of a, he's a man-child, but at the same time, he does want to do the right, like he's not... Selfish. He's in fact the opposite of selfish. He's he's he kind of wants to do right by whoever he can. Like in a way, he's kind of like a selfless, like superhero kind of character that he comes in and he writes wrongs and he and he does whatever. Uh, and I, I could never wrap my uh, mind around. And I know we're going to talk about Punch Drunk Love later, but that has the whole man child and the maturity element. Here he gets an orphan child, and they kind of, sort of have to care for it. But he never really matures. Like I, I, I the, the character, I guess, he's a bit more adult at the beginning, but he never really grows over the course of the movie. He just sort of absorbs new things. He doesn't really. He's no different at the end. He just has more accessories. <laughs> I don't know how, how else to explain it. Clearly, I've left everyone speechless <laughs> on this. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing to add. That, that made no sense, yes. <laughs> Still Kurt, processing it, Kurt. Still now we can all talk Kurt, over each other a, and pretend this is an Altman movie. That was a perfectly formed thought. That was <laughs> exactly. Yep. You left us speechless. Cogent. So what, uh, what does everybody think about uh, Wimpy in this movie, the character played by uh, Paul Dooley? Because I, I felt he was 
completely and totally irrelevant, even though he's supposed to be one of the major characters in the Popeye comic strips. I mean, major. Well, he's, you know. again, Wimpy has one joke in the in the strips. It's always <laughs> funny. It's always funny that he is like, you know, this ridiculous idea that he's going to pay the person back for buying him the hamburger. That to me is like that is that is a consistently funny idea. Right? The thing where someone is lying and you know they're lying and they know you know and they're still going through with it. That's that's funny. But it's how much more can they give the guy to do? It, it just seems every time he's on screen I I just kept wondering why he was on screen. I know you have to put Whippy in the movie, but yeah. it, it seemed like the wrong way to do it. And I like Paul Dooley, absolutely. Except in a perfect couple, but uh, yeah, this didn't work for me for even a second. It's it's kind of like the question you ask yourself when you watch the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you're like, why are there talking gargoyles in this? This movie works perfectly fine without these gargoyles. I don't understand. Disney requires there be a couple sidekicks. Yeah, it's in so the contract. Disney require it in a weird way, right? It's the same. It's the same basic dynamic. He's a sidekick. Um, Donald Moffat, who plays the tax man, gets a lot more screen time and a lot more, I guess, connected purpose to the movie um, than Wimpy. But I, I guess it's it's kind of the overarching thing is that it's a like a anti like tax the people into oblivion, you know, like power structure forcing everyone down kind of movie. Um, yeah, well, it's not until, like, I think Popeye throws the tax man through the water that the town actually warms up to him. Up until then, they're, they're kind of bastards to him. Yeah, well, there's the whole, there's the whole plot of um, once Bluto has been spurned by olive oil for Popeye, he, he doesn't get violent, actually. He just taxes her family into oblivion. And, and I think the family was actually trying to marry her off so that they could get on the right side of not paying taxes, it's kind of pretty cynical. Um, I'm not sure where to put Olive Oil's family or what they're supposed to be in the movie. They kind of disappear anyway uh, at about the halfway mark. Yeah, they're sort of set up like she's Cinderella, but it's not really... It, it doesn't really carry through, you're right. Yeah, I guess the last thing to talk about is that final action set piece when they finally leave the the Sweet Haven set and they're in the Pirate's Cove and I, I think Matt you might have said earlier uh, that the octopus doesn't work but I don't think anything in that No, I could no. have actually just hung out in the town and watched the occasional yeah. fist fight or, the town was a mistake. <laughs> or whatever but when they leave the town and now they're in kind of um, it just it reminded me of the bad elements of Hook. I don't know. Like it just it feels so <laughs> artificial and and just like why are we having an action scene? Yeah. Apparently, Robin Williams should never interact with anything to do with pirates. <laughs> yeah, this is. I forgot. Always, yeah, he's the connected in that too. It's yeah. always trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but but how Apparently else that, do you... that that uh, can of spinach? Um... <laughs> that Ray threw on his head apparently like uh, caused the uh, production of the film to be delayed <laughs> because he got stitches on his head and everything. I was like, geez, we probably shouldn't have had that sequence at all then. Like, sorry, they cut him with the prop can? Well, he threw it so hard at him that it actually injured Robin Williams. <laughs> 
It wasn't a prop can, I guess. It <laughs> wow. actually hurt him. Yeah. That's it's, pretty he, nuts. it's okay. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in 1980, Robin Williams didn't feel a fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was on something making this movie. Well, but this this was his first, like, starring role in a... Right. I know he had some more Mindy years under his belt, but this was his first, like, big... He's really young. That was yeah. what struck me... Um, immediately is like, oh my god, is he ever fresh-faced in this movie? And so I don't think, you know, there were no, other than the Morecambe anything, there were no Robin Williams cliches, or no one knew what a Robin yeah. Williams In fact, this probably goes a long way to start to define, because his career is all over the place too, right? I mean, he's... He's got good films. He's got bad movies. He's got yeah, over but the it top. took him. It took him until Good Morning Vietnam to actually kind of come back, right? Channel his personality yeah. into something yeah. uh, that works from one end. Yeah, balance comedy and drama. Yeah, and and that sort of he, he, maudlin aspect. I, I can't remember what else he made. I guess he made Garp right after this. Oh yeah, and Garp yeah, and, was uh, a huge, was a huge failure. Moscow on the Hudson, and I think. And then you did Moscow on the Hudson, which is like yeah. the first time that I think people were like, oh, you could take him seriously as uh, being in films. But it wasn't, it was like a modest success, but not not huge. And yeah, I think it was like three or four more years until Good Morning Vietnam, right? And it's just like a bunch of small incremental steps to build back up from this, you know, career-destroying hole that he has dug for himself off the hop. Yeah, and I feel his career always bounced from him being very... Like taking these very serious roles and then taking these comedies that are like furious and manic and and not even trying to be mm -hmm. serious. Uh, he's a tough guy to pin down. When when we picked these movies originally last year for this show, Robin Williams was still alive, <laughs> um, and I, I don't think his death influences in any way that you watch Popeye, but. Um, I can't picture him as a really old man. I, I maybe it's my own flaw. I just what would a you know um, late era um, you know I don't know. I feel like isn't there that movie Bad Grandpa? I feel like that's kind of what he. Oh yeah, you think <laughs> he would still he still just kind of wander around making people miserable. <laughs> yeah. I... I, I yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing to consider. How old was Robin Williams when he died? Was he 60? He's mid-60s, so I think. He's a yeah. couple years younger than my parents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think the only thing that kind of sort of comes close to him playing kind of an older man was just his uh, episode uh, on, you know, Louis' show, which is just kind of beautiful. Like, it's just a beautiful oh, meditation. that's right, the funeral. Yeah. It's a powerful episode, especially to see now, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So I was going to say, the, the one thing we, we haven't talked about is, I think my favorite part of the movie, and the kind of connective tissue between these two films, is uh, Olive Oil's rendition of He Needs Me, which, yeah. uh, again, is, I think, a, just a, a great moment from Duval, and I think one of the best parts of the movie, because it had... I would agree. Yeah, some sort of focus to it. It had some energy to it. And if more of the movie was like that, this would have been a fantastic movie. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's because I know that song so well. 
Like it's the yeah. it's certainly a lifeline for me coming into Popeye now. That certainly helps for sure. I, yeah. know that's uh, yeah. I agree. I I if I was lagging in energy up to the point and thinking that the rattlesnake gag with with the baby was like really belabored, um, it it did snap back into focus the moment she starts. Uh, singing and then those orgasm eyes that that's just bizarre. Um, but I <laughs> I like that scene. I agree. I think it's the best sequence possibly in the film. I almost wish this were a Cinecast episode. Just you can call it those orgasm that, that, eyes. That would be your title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Save it. Save it for a future episode. Okay. <laughs> just talk about The Shining again. But yeah, I just uh, overall I, I like this movie. I don't love it. It's it's certainly not something uh, I'm going to revisit frequently. But yeah, the the thing I, I I agree with Bob in that the the connective tissue, the thing that kind of makes me giddy is the majority of the songs. Because um, Harry Nilsson is one of my all time favorite songwriters. Clearly an influence on my favorite composer, John Bryan. Uh, so I just love. You know his his sensibilities uh, sprinkled throughout this movie. Although I I'm pretty sure he was both high and drunk writing these songs. <laughs> but yeah, I I like you know the 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 the, the cute little ballad they sing the sweet pea and um, the Bluto's song and especially he needs me. Yeah. I just I think well, all those you, are good. If you want to know how important Nielsen is to making this movie work even half of the time. Think about what would have happened if they had gotten basically anyone else who was writing music for things like this at the time. Like, God forbid, what if they had gotten Paul Williams to do this? <laughs> you think it would be like a swinging for the fences kind of? Like, that would have been... I just saw Bugsy Malone recently. Like, that would have been a fucking disaster. Like, like a horrendous... The music is really lovely in this. And it really pulls... The, you know the fact that there's all these disparate things it it's if anything is pulling them together and creating connective tissue it's that's it's those songs right which is funny because so. that's usually the opposite of a criticism of a musical where you feel the movie stops dead in order to have the song in this movie yeah the uh, the songs are like okay slack pacing and everything let's pick up and let's move along like the uh, <laughs> yeah it's a good, it's a good point yeah, yeah. And it's well, they, they, you're, you, to be fair to be fair you're not watching the right musicals. Um, Maybe that's not what's supposed to happen. I know, but it you know when the when the musicals were being turned out like westerns or like comic book movies are now like there's so many of them that yeah. just the lower end of them are like the worst. Where yeah, the, I agree. Yeah, they nothing's stop. worse than an unforgettable musical number that brings a movie to a stop. Right. Um, uh, last thing I want to say is. Uh, for all the weirdness in the movie, you'd think the hardest thing to juggle usually is animals and, and, and infants. All the sequences with the baby in this are delightfully charming. Like, it's a really... I don't know how many babies they used. I, I heard it was, like, Alvin's grandson. Alvin's grandson. And yeah, like, the kid's a natural. Keep him in the picture. I, I mean, it's wonderful. He's, he's really good. And he, in the latter half of the film, he has a lot of chaos going on around him. And they, they actually... You don't feel they're cutting away from the baby to preserve the shot up until this point. It, it it's pretty it's pretty natural. And and he does feel like how the baby is used in at least for me in the cartoons. Like the baby's just kind of 
almost indifferent, but engaged at the same time to everything around, but not in fear and, and, and whatnot, despite what's happening. Agree. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Anybody else have any <laughs> final thoughts on the on the Popeye? <laughs> I feel like we've all like, gentlemen, we've struck a bargain. <laughs> Let's move on. Well, is anyone going to go back and regularly rewatch this? No. Or is it just no. back no. to McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Yes. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll watch a lot of these Altman films again, but I, I highly doubt this will be one of them. Me either, but it's going to stick in my memory, partially because of those songs, which I yeah. I don't think I liked that much the first time through, but when I watched it again, I was like, yeah, I remember he's large, and obviously <laughs> he needs me, and, and all the rest of them, they, they really stick with you, so I don't think those are going anywhere. That's Nilsson for you. Yeah. Well, part of me believes that this is the type of movie, like, again, maybe there's not a great desire to rewatch this, but if... if um, if you did rewatch it many times, it's a movie that would keep 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 growing on you. Like all the things that felt awkward, and you know, you sort of cock your head to the side, going, "Oh, that really didn't work." Would would almost become endearing after a lot of viewings. That's my guess. I, I don't know if that would indeed be that way. I think you'd turn it off twenty minutes before the end. Yeah, you you, yeah. you would you would go. Okay, we don't need to go there. Yep. All right, well then, uh, segueing in with He Needs Me, um, Jim, do you want to set us up with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love? Give us a little insight on uh, what the movie's about and your initial thoughts, and then we'll just go around the room again. Happy to. Well, um, Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director. (laughs) Um, Just start off there with that caveat, but I think... um, Recently hearing him on uh, WTF with Mark Marin, he talked briefly about each of his films, and, you know, <laughs> pretty much Mark Marin would ask him straight out, what was that all about? And uh, Paul Thomas Anderson just comes up with like a one-sentence, simple uh, response to just about every movie and says, well, I just wanted to make a simple love story with Adam Sandler. And that was that. <laughs> you know, like, he didn't have this... You know, particular you know vision. Although apparently this has um, been sort of cited as one of his more personal movies, uh, just based on like the the character of Barry as you know, kind of being full of pent up anxiety and having some anger issues. And uh, Paul Thomas Hampson comes from a large family and all that. But here he 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 was. Um, just coming off, well, a couple of years after making a three-and-a-half-hour magnum opus uh, with Magnolia, and he just kind of wanted to do the complete opposite. He wanted to go in a very different direction with a simple 90-minute romantic love story with Adam Sandler because he said that while he was making Magnolia, um, he, he would sort of uh, unwind with Adam Sandler's earliest comedies, particularly Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Wedding Singer, and Big Daddy. So he just really wanted to make uh, a comedy of sorts with Adam Sandler and even went on Saturday Night Live um, just to sort of observe and interact with everybody there and that's sort of how he fell into the scene over um, with a lot of uh, fellow comedians and whatnot, including Robert Smigel who plays the uh, dentist (laughs) very briefly in this in uh, Punch Drunk Love, but... 
I will say right off the top that um, the more I watch this, the more it sort of seeps into me as being exactly what I want from a movie. Um, this is like, in, this is my in the mood for love, Amelie, whatever you want to call like a great uh, sort of romantic dramedy of sorts. Uh, it contains my favorite shot in any movie where they kiss in silhouette and the ending, sort of the diegetic and non-diegetic music playing together is a moment of harmony. And I think that's what this movie really is about. It's about finding harmony, both within the film and with the characters and the whole thing with the harmonium. I just love it all. I just think that Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, this is possibly my favorite movie of his, but every time I watch one of his movies, I kind of say that about everything. So I have a bias, clearly. Um, But Punch Drunk Love is a wonderful piece of filmmaking, and we'll talk more about it. I don't know if we will, Jim, because uh, you're going to just talk for me for the rest of the night. You've said almost everything I want to say. I yeah, okay. this film. Yeah, sorry. I, I went on I'm too long. I was going to say, this was supposed to be a two-minute intro. Come on, Oops. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you like 10,000%, Jim. I, I love P.T. Anderson, and I adore this film from every single angle you look at it. Even yeah. things that I, maybe I don't quite understand a certain look, I, I don't I don't care. I, I I feel this movie in every shot and every bit of color and every scene. Uh, yeah, it's a movie I revisit often, um, and and it and it really was the uh, impetus to pair it with Popeye because the use one of the musical numbers is kind of the score for this film, um, and. Uh, just the way that feels like a, a director making his own movie, but also interacting uh, with things that he likes or things that he finds interesting. And I find that this movie pulls you in to that little tiny world that he creates. The thing that blows me away about Punch Drunk Love more than anything is that it's so bloody short. Like he, yeah. It's everything that he, he has to say about, um, I guess it's the blossoming of the Adam Sandler character uh, in the movie, because I don't really think the... Um, Emily Watson's character does like she's kind of a manic, manic pixie dream girl, but she's not. I don't even think that tropic was labeled when this movie was made. But uh, she doesn't really. She isn't much of a character. It's everything is the focus on Adam Sandler. Everything revolves around him. And and uh, I can't believe I'm not a big Adam Sandler fan. So watching like the art house Adam Sandler movie and have it be this delightful and this engaging and this interesting. To watch is and to do that in 90 minutes is is pretty impeccable stuff. Um, I always find new things buried in this film, uh, despite its very short length. Well, I think um, this is for sure. When I saw it, this was absolutely my my favorite film by him. Um, although I had not seen Sydney at the time that I saw this, so. I think I, I it may have been close if I had seen it, but um, but what strikes what struck me at the time and strikes me just having watched it just recently is um, how how much this movie sort of solidifies all of his uh, various gifts as a director into one thing. Like I actually have, although I think they're they're monumentally ambitious. I have a certain amount of trouble with aspects of both Boogie Nights and Magnolia um, in the sense that I feel like those are both movies that really function for me as a collection of very good scenes 
but they don't really function as holistic movies. They're just a one sort of really interesting scene after another. But this is the first one where I feel like he actually put together a whole movie, where the whole movie feels like it's of a piece and everything fits together in a in a, in such a beautifully kind of detailed way, and the mood in it is so um, sustained over that course of this movie. Like it's so dramatically strong. The performances are really good. the 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 dynamics that he's got. The stuff that he's got between between Adam Sandler and the sisters is like that is next level. I've never seen family relationships condensed down that fast and that accurately. Like that is the hell of a family. So fast, like in two you know in two lines of dialogue, you get exactly why this guy is exactly who he is. It's 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 a. Uh, um, like a Swiss watch, this film. I really, you know, that's what that's what impresses me the most. It's got precision. It's interesting that you mentioned the family. I, really, it's just the one sister is the bulk of the family. There's only really one scene in the film, and it's possibly all, only about five minutes long all you at need, most. Yeah, all you need are those phone conversations. Yeah. Right. That one scene... And you know exactly why he is smashing those those screen doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You completely get it. This everything he does makes perfect sense. So I'm just I'm just thinking of that one scene with the one sister saying, "Remember when we used to call you gay boy? We used to call you gay boy. Are you gay? Are you gay right now?" Uh, like you said, Matt, that that just condensed it right there. Yep. There's an aspect of that that I, I have a feel, that I just feel like nobody. I don't have any sisters. I fully identify. With exactly what's happening in that scene, <laughs> I, I have a sister, and I fully identify with what's happening in that yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Mary Lynn uh, Rice Cub, who plays the, the 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 sister we see the most, I think she's kind of the unsung hero. Uh, you know, because like you're ready to sort of just pigeonhole her as being well, she's just kind of you know controlling bitch and being really mean to him, and then. She seems to express a lot of concern when, you know, she finds out that he asked uh, her husband for a psychiatrist and stuff. And, um, like, I think their interactions are really interesting. Like, it's not something you can just immediately go, well, they're all, you know, evil or whatever. And I think yeah. that's what Paul Thomas Anderson does really well, is just finds, you know, the humanity. Do you guys throughout. feel like, in addition to being the boy, he's also the youngest? Yeah, he's definitely yeah. the youngest. And it's like, it's really clear that he's the youngest, and they yep. never say it. No, and they never say the, it, but I wouldn't have thought anything the else. the next youngest. That Mary Lynn Rice Cub is the next youngest. So she's the closest to him. Yeah, I could yeah, see I would, that. I would have guessed that too, yeah. But also in that sequence that Jim mentioned where they're like privately, and she's like, did you did you ask him for to see a psychiatrist? And there is a, I imagine, well, my reaction to that scene is, please don't tell her. <laughs> Like, please don't. <laughs> yeah. Like, even if she has good intentions, she will fall yeah. back into her habits. Yeah, and... well, that's just it. Sure, sure. She feels like she's straddling between trying to genuinely, like, you know, do the right thing, but then the whole family dynamic is pushing her back towards that, you know, like, uh, sort of it's where a they're little just bit of her as a person, too, because the one interaction of that character uh, is with Emily Watson on the phone in Hawaii, and she still has this... Uh, yeah. it's, it's, she's still pretty aggressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can think he's weird. He's my brother. 
Yeah, she's very impressive <laughs> in that with her coworker. You feel like I'm not entirely sure why they're friends beyond the fact that this is kind of a movie about loneliness and everyone is kind kind of uh, lonely uh, in their own way. The only person that seems to have his shit together in this movie is Louis Guzman, um, <laughs> and mainly because he's not in the movie much. Uh, he just he's fine. Uh, oh, but, he, but he makes the most of his scenes. He does. Uh, I don't but, know, those four, those four brothers seem pretty comfortable in their own skin. <laughs> well, they're very upset that their expenses are not covered. They're, listen, um, they, are, yeah. they are uncomplicated. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I, I read somewhere that um, uh, John C. Riley was supposed to be one of the brothers, uh, and they actually uncast him because they felt that because he's known for other things, it would actually break the purpose of those yeah. kind of Plus, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern brothers? Brothers? Pardon me? It's, it's how great is it that they're actually brothers? They are actually brothers. They're just four brothers. Like, it's hilarious <laughs> to me. Because why not? I mean, yeah. the, the fascinating thing of looking at this against Popeye is that Popeye was clearly a giant built set and Punch Drunk Love is clearly shot in real locations all the time. Even when they could have used the movie set, it looks like they're using... A real location, yeah, uh, for it. Now that might be a speed thing, like uh, he's making a small little movie, and you could just if the, if it's already built, why build it again? Uh, but it is the movie succeeds a lot in part, even though he has very meticulously composed shots, and there's a there's a lot of information be being included in how shots are framed. But it's very clearly shot on the streets of Los Angeles and shot in these kind of anonymous, like strip mallish. Factories. I mean, the the whole landscape is designed to be as anonymous and alienated as the Barry Egan character is supposed to feel. And like, there's no coincidence whatsoever that the movie starts off with a silence and then a horrendous non sequitur car accident, which is, I feel, is how you would describe Adam Sandler's character in all of those kind of goofy comedies that it, that he's in he's either he's being wound up to the point and then he just explodes and I think trying to look at it in a somewhat more realistic way and not a comedy way even though it is still kind of funny um, is kind of one of the strengths of this movie it's a full blown deconstruction of what Adam Sandler yeah. makes his bank on um, that's exactly right and, and I think yeah. it's interesting too is like the scene where he um, breaks down and, and you know cries says I cry for no reason. The audience it was almost like uh, the force majeure kind of response where some people were laughing, some people were cringing. Like I found it to be really sad and like I was surprised by that moment just because like everybody had a very different reaction to like Adam Sandler crying because everybody's so used to Adam Sandler, the goofy guy, and to just see him like you know have an emotional breakdown was kind of. Uh, Shocking for some people, I think, and nobody knew what to make of this movie. Well, if it was in one of his films, it would be played for a broad yes. laugh. Whereas this exactly. is definitely shot. I think every scene that, until the end of the movie, when you know he finds his place, every scene is designed to maximize discomfort, both for Barry <laughs> and 
for us. Um, yeah. Like oh, even the soundtrack was... feels like it's conspiring yeah. against him more often than not. Like that. I don't know what it is. It's part percussion and then some other, like almost washboards. Well, that's that's kind of. one of the the most incredible mm-hmm. sequences in the movie is when uh, uh, Lena, I think, uh, season for the second time, walks in with the sister to his office. That whole growing tension on the soundtrack. Oh there, God! The crashing forklift and the uh, the phone call and, and his sister confronting with the psychiatrist. Oh my yeah. goodness! What an absolute. And the symbols crashing in the in the in the soundtrack. Because yeah, you feel yeah. that. You just it, feel that. It's both visually and 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 orally, uh, like to me, it reminds me of sort of like Philip Glass, like and not just because it's that percussive repeating sound, but because even visually, it's like percussive and repeating and and building and and crescendoing on top of itself and and uh, and kind of counterpointing its own rhythms. It's it's that scene is like because this is a movie made up of a lot of long takes. And that scene is the opposite of that and, like, blows me away. It's mm-hmm. so, so good at, like, the orchestration of that. Like, that thing where he just motions out the window at the forklift, like, you guys okay? You're okay? And he goes around, like, wow! That, that scene makes me giddy. I mean, yeah. it's supposed to make you cringe, and I'm, I'm just giddy throughout that whole thing. What about the phone sex call? Where 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 do you uh, where do you stand on like how does that scene play out? Does it make you uncomfortable? Is it comic? Is it? I'm not sure why. Is anyone genuinely uncomfortable with that scene? It it, it was for me. I think the the first couple of times I saw it, just because it, it stands so very uh, sharply different than the rest of the movie. Um, I mean, it's not I mean, like it's... it's a surprise with a P.T. Anderson movie at that point, but especially with this character too, it just it just seemed very explicit. But the more I see it, the more it um, that scene seems, makes perfect sense. That scene seems in, exceptionally tame to me by any normal modern day standard. Well, it, so yeah. it's it's funny you say that, Matt, because I've been wanting to show this film to my my son uh, Kieran for a long time, and we just watched it together recently. And one of the reasons I kept holding off was that scene. Not that I'm overly worried about it, but, you know, it's sort of like, ah, there's some terms in there. And we watched it, and I was like, oh, it's it's not actually that that bad. No, so I... There's something that just sort of sat in the back of my head going, yeah. So I feel it's like... That's me. Or maybe, maybe for you, it's like the ear getting cut off in uh, Reservoir Dogs. Like, it's not there on screen. You're just coloring in a lot of extra stuff. It may be, yeah. <laughs> in your mind, like, like it's extrapolating out because it's so well put together, right? I think part of it is that um, Barry is in his own apartment. He's slightly more comfortable than when he's yeah. out in public. So I love that that she's trying to go through the kind of just checking off the boxes of phone sex, and he's like, "No, I'm 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 not doing that." <laughs> <He's>, yeah, <laughs> you know, he genuinely wants someone to talk to, and she can't get off the phone sex script, nor can she pick up on the. Um, like the nuance over the phone. I think that there's a there's a whole thing in this movie with phones where I was just gonna say that. cannot yeah, always on the phone in this movie. Phones do nothing but cause anguish in people's lives. Like the way that all the except sisters tec- call like texting is now. Except for <laughs> yeah, but except for the other thing that I think is maybe the most amazing thing in this movie, which I only realized this time I watched it, was that which is that when he calls to try to find Lena from the parade, and then the light on the phone goes on when he reaches her. Yeah, and yeah. the parade cheers. Bing. There's a, there's a yeah. 
a perfect like a foley of the people in the parade giving a hurrah. All, yeah, all I don't in. think the phone is. I don't think the phone is supposed to be only viewed as bad in this because that's the other thing. He carries that phone in his hand all the way to confront the guy. Yes, he does. We just said twice. I think too. He brings him to the hospital as well. But I also it's... feel that when he retires the phone. At the end of that scene, he's had the big confrontation with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and they they both kind of, you know, almost come to blows, but then clearly he's starting to win. He's starting to understand that he can just control and he doesn't have to go into a rage fit. And when he hands the phone to the just some random mattress employee um, and walks out, he's like, that's it. The phone is done. I'm out of here, and I can... Not worry about it. Anymore. I feel like that. I feel the phone is symbolic of of things that put him on edge. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it's not a one hundred percent correlation because you're right. That sequence is quite good, although it is precursored with the scene of him talking to his sister, where he does lose his shit pretty hard. But even <laughs> sure. that, even that thing of him losing his shit to me is him growing out of his problems mm-hmm. because he actually confronts her and. And actually says, "You're treating me really badly right now." And I, it, I, I feel like that scene, that that to me is like a real. It's a positive for him, because she actually does. It, there, there's this level of her actually understanding. Oh, I am really treating him badly. Yeah, but there's yeah, the film never gives you another scene with those two characters directly interacting to know. But um, no, but I don't think you need it. I think no, because he's shifted away scene. from this codependence thing and yeah. he's slowly uh, moving in favor of um, uh, Emily Watson who I think we should talk about at this point I'm not part of me I really like her performance and I, I like the actress in general the first place I saw her was in Lars von Trier's uh, Breaking the Waves um, which is very different from her performance in that movie is very different from her performance in this movie but I, I in both of those performances, I couldn't quite figure her out. I mean, I understand her as a device to move Adam Sandler forward, but I don't understand... I don't believe them. I mean, the movie's got a point of view. It's not aiming to pass the Bechdel test or whatever it is, but um, I don't feel that does. she's much of a character uh, in the, the movie. because of their conversation on the phone. With... Because they're talking about work. Right, right. Well, I mean, that you know, a, a bit of it is explained in, in another one of the signature pieces of the movie is the He Needs Me sequence. I mean, it, it's it's almost about her feelings. That's kind of what she feels about him is that yeah. hey, he needs me. And that's, I think, where she's coming from is finally somebody who can not just love me but requires my love back. And and I think that's a big part of the movie too. It, it is mostly about him, but I think a lot of it is her as well. You mean like a, the selfless notion of love? That's what you're saying from her point of view of that movie. No, I, I, don't I don't know. I don't... No, it, it's it's more just the fact that finally here's somebody who just who just needs me to love them. It isn't requiring me to do things for them. Isn't requiring me to you know make breakfast or, or whatever she's had in her previous marriage, previous relationships. And, you know, she seems pretty mature. Here's a guy who just wants me to, to love him. And I, I, I find that really compelling. And that whole sequence is absolutely brilliant where the song repeats and repeats and repeats 
that kind of theme. I also think, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I, this does not strike me as a, as a performance that doesn't have a lot going on. She's, she's given a lot to work with, and I think she does a really good job. Like, uh, you know, if you think about some of the stuff that she gets to do that you never see women in romantic comedies or in any kind of uh, romantic position in, Holly, in, um, in Hollywood movies get to do, I mean, that thing where she phones him as he's leaving, she phones down to the lobby to stop him from leaving and, and actually sort of se- you know, says what she needs to say to him in terms of, uh, I wanted to kiss you just so you know that, because I don't want you walking around not knowing what I was thinking. Like, like one of the things I think is so interesting about her is that she and this performance is that she's communicating a lot of stuff in, in a very subtle way about how she, like, how quickly she's able to figure out what's going on with him. And, and you know, it's like she sees the person that he's on the way to to uh, being and she's and she's able to kind of um, hold herself back a little bit in a really smart way to to let him arrive at that conclusion. It doesn't feel like like she's one note or anything. It feels more like she's like maybe ahead of him. No, I would never argue that. Yeah, but I, it, it it sort of begs the question of what then is her motivation. To do oh, this. That and she, that she can see this, the... this genuine person inside him that's worth fighting for. That she understands that he will get to the place where she will have a happy life with him. So she, well, then, but I feel that's kind of a a women in movies or literature cliche of I will groom the man up to. Um, I don't think she's grooming a better man, <laughs> making him be a better man. Him. She doesn't do anything to change him. She just waits for... She just allows him the space to change himself. Yeah, well, even in that, that she's patient. Even in that scene, Matt, you mentioned about when he comes back to her room yeah. and kiss, and then after, when they hug right after, it, it was a scene that I, I didn't quite get the first few times I saw the movie where you see her face, and it's not happy, it's not smiling, it's, it's almost, hmm, I'm not sure why I'm doing this, but I, I think it's she's... She's getting to the point where, yeah, I think he's coming along. I'm still, he's still not quite <laughs> yeah. ready to to be himself, but I think he's getting there. But there's still that look of almost confusion on her face. I could see that. I, I think she expresses at one point too, um, early on when they first meet um, at the warehouse, she expresses a different kind of loneliness. Like clearly, Barry is lonely despite having a bunch of siblings, and she sort of expresses to him. Um, you know, I'm an only child, and I hate it. And she's feel she feels very lonely in that regard. And I think that they sort of connect on just the level of two lonely people. Yeah, she does have uh, that line in Hawaii. Thank you for getting me out of my hotel room. Yeah. yeah. And I just like you know she she waits until I mean he does a lot of crazy stuff that you would think would be an opportunity for for her to go. You can't do that. You can't do stuff like that. You can't destroy a, uh, a, a, a restaurant bathroom. That's not going to be okay. She never does any of that. She actually waits until basically the end of the movie just to say, you can't leave me at the hospital. Yeah. And it's, and it's as if, it's like, to me, what's beautiful about that is it's like he finally came up enough to be on, on an equal enough level to her where she actually can make a reasonable demand. 
Oh, before she's got <laughs> like she's taking it really slow because he's that far behind her. Yeah, she's she's you know she's the she's the adult in yeah, the relationship. Yeah, and it's a weird way to make a romantic comedy <laughs> to make that much of a imbalance of maturity between them. But I guess it's the right thing to do if you're deconstructing the Adam Sandler character. I read a, a couple of ridiculous theory, theories that um, Emily Watson's character is actually an alien. Um, which I didn't believe whatsoever until I watched the... Room 237 of Punch yeah, Out pretty much. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it. I didn't even think of that at all, and I don't necessarily buy into it. But then I watched the Blossoms and Blood little mini feature on, on the DVD, and there's a deleted scene of Emily Watson watching some space program on the TV. So there you go. It's, it's, well, it's, it's hidden there in the background. <laughs> I don't well, know. In the background, there is the sequence the first time he's shopping for pudding, which amazingly hasn't come up yet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When he's in the grocery store at the beginning, looking at all the like the, the different healthy oh, like dinners or whatever, as, as the camera's scrolling down the aisles, you can actually, you see, you, you can't tell whether it's her or not, but it's someone in the a red dress, dress yeah. perfectly walking. Is that, the is that, P.T. Anderson just kind of doing a little bit of subliminal thing, or is she literally stalking him <laughs> in the grocery question. store? Um, it, it's really subtle, and I did not notice it the first several times that I watched the yeah. film, but yeah. it, once you know it's there, and you, because he does stop in the middle of that shot, and, and he says, what am I looking for? gives you for? a very clear visual cue, but, you know, sometimes I'm just a dunce when I'm watching these things and you miss it because you're looking at other things. Um, but it, once you know it's there, you can't not notice it. It's really obvious. In fact, it, it feels like more than anything, because he's already established the, the pudding thing at this point, that that's the reason for that shot. And it's before they've had any real, other than the opening scene, they haven't had any interaction at this point other than mm -hmm. the car keys, right? Let's uh, let's talk about the color in this movie too, which is just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and and brilliant. And his blue suit and his uh, his tie, which I think changes color throughout the movie from I think blue all the way to red towards the end. Yeah. And her dresses, her red and purple, and when she's got that beautiful white outfit on in Hawaii, every scene in this in this movie that the color is just so wonderfully chosen. Even with those kind of lens flares, the blue for him say, and yeah. purple on her. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And those weird interstitials. Yeah, I was going to say, which are, it's like a Rorschach test of light, those... those. Um... Well, it's also like between this and and uh, and um, the Von Trier film, it's like, is this a thing that Emily Watson likes to have in her movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's not martyred. Like, she's trying to be helpful in both movies. She's a little more successful, or depending on how you want to... Spin it. Yeah. Um, um, but also, the like, movie the other thing is the, the harmonium, in a, in a weird synesthesia way, is like all those colors. Hmm. Like, the sounds that a harmonium makes, they sound like color to me. Well, I, and I guess yeah. that's the fact that the, the score is harmonium, and the score really swells during those colored yeah. scenes. Is, so yeah. there's the a lot of has that weird vibrato feeling when it's this color in this movie especially has a lot of like you know uh, variance to it. And yeah, stuff. like one of, of those sound wave like where it represents yeah. your song as <laughs> splotches of uh, of things.
things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it's all of that together situates situates you in a very imperfect universe in a very beautiful way. Well, and yeah, and I I I thought I thought I read somewhere too that like the lens flares and especially like the bursts of light sort of represent uh, Barry's like anxiety or something. Like, and I I I saw it more as just like the 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 colors, you know, especially when they sort of mesh together is just like you know um, Emily Watson's character sort of having you know kind of an effect on on Adam Sandler's character. Well, yeah, I, so I, mean, I, I, like I they combine it several times. We yeah, I, I, I buy with that too as well. Yeah, there, there's one scene where you've got I think the the straight kind of blue lens flare from him, and it almost kind of dovetails right into this kind of 45 degree angle. I think red one coming from her, and it they just yeah. blend almost perfectly. So yeah, I, I see those interstitials in the same way. Well, the the blown out light, particularly in the opening sequence when he's, I mean, obviously there's a practical reason when you're shooting on film, you can't easily, if you're going to do it in one shot, something's going to be blown out or dark. Uh, but it works in the same way that Altman did in The Long Goodbye, where they overexposed <laughs> and overlit. When, when Elliot Gould doesn't have a clue what's going on, everything is kind of, has those sun flares and everything, and then as, yeah. as he becomes more and more like getting closer to figuring what things out, they just slowly back that off uh, over the course of the movie. And I think this is functions in the same way because by the time you get to Hawaii where he's now started finding his groove, um, it's nicely you know lit in a nice sunset and dark and candles and it's not like the beginning with that harsh concrete pavement morning yeah. Yeah, that opening scene, yeah, that black and color. And that comes back to what was said earlier, is that this isn't like one of his three-hour movies where he's like, I want to do a bunch of things, and they don't all have to interlock, but the movie will be fine. This is like, no, everything has to fit. Like This movie is really designed. It, it, it might feel loose when you're watching it, but it is... Yeah, that's what yeah, I thought when I first saw it. Designed, yeah. It's ridiculous, yeah. It also, you mentioned that how the color gets more conventional when they get to Hawaii. That, by the way, is, I, I would say, I'm sure we all, uh, that is my favorite line in the entire movie, when he just looks out and goes, boy, it really looks like Hawaii here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is a great... <laughs> well, no, but there's a, but he's always trying to cover up his, like, uh, no, I didn't say that, he's so awkward at covering it up. I there's another sequence that echoes that when he gets on the, the plane, and he's just interacting, he doesn't care if this other guy is going to judge the fact that he's nervous about the plane. He's, it, It's him. It's a really nice way to be I'm comfortable saying anything. I'm getting more comfortable with just existing in the world. And, and that shot where they <clears throat> meet in Hawaii, where they kiss, and it's that beautiful silhouette and uh, oh. favorite scene <laughs> of the film. Um, you have... Hundreds of people walking in front and behind them. It's not like the world stops for them. It's that, no, they can comfortably exist together out in the world, and that's cool. Like, that's a really nice... Because they're both kind of shut-ins. Like, you look at yeah. their apartments, and yeah, they're, they're really shut-in kind of people, and they don't, they're both kind of awkward, and now they can just be uninhibited out in public. Like, that's the moment right there. They don't care who's watching. They don't care what it looks like. Boom. They're in their own world, but they can comfortably coexist in the in the, in the the bigger 
world. Um, although, in contrast to that, the final shot is them, like in, like it's just them. Like the very final shot when he 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 stops noodling on the harmonia and actually starts to play it, and she's behind him, um, hugging it. I find it interesting that they don't play it together. <laughs> she's just kind of passively behind him while he actually plays. But what a great final line. So here we go. Yeah. yeah. Just like just kind of a perfect little tie up of that whole that whole story. Well, it's better than the opening line uh, where I think the opening line in the movie is, "Yeah, I'm still on hold." <laughs> Maybe that's all he knows, but no one notices like you don't have enough information on a first viewing. To remember that, but when you watch it again and again, you're like, he literally starts this movie on hold. Like, I, it's kind of one of those images that should be almost um, painful in its obviousness, but no, it it very much works. It 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 totally yeah, it totally works. If you're doing it well, you can get away with the real big obvious shit. It's when you're not doing it well, it feels like you're crutching on well, it. Well, it's like also this... the way that the way that shot is framed with the stripe on the wall going converging on him in the corner, mm-hmm. fully inside that stripe. He is completely hemmed in visually as well as being on hold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just lay it on there, PTA. Just lay it on thick. <laughs> yeah, but there's no point in hiding it. It's yeah. Does anybody else? You know what else struck me really is like I feel I think of this as like a modern movie, right? Like it's a movie made when I was, you know, an adult and, and kind of my perception is of it being, you know, very recent. And yet virtually everything about it is completely outdated. Like uh, All hmm. of P.T. Anderson's movies are modern and outdated at the same time. Yeah, but this this is purporting... This this was set in present day, in present time, like... Right, it's in, not a period. It's not a period piece in any remote way, and yet it's like it's so... is right on the cusp of all those things changing that would have ruined this movie, like cell phones and texting and all the rest of the nonsense, and also the internet for pornography and all the rest of that. Right, it, oh, too, you're, you're... Yeah, you're right yeah, in the, the just, rise of... Managed to just freeze frame at exactly the right moment where the world was still like the old world, where you had to make a phone call to have weird sexual encounters, and you had to, yeah. you know, like, like it's like even even the fact that they they he basically falls victim to a phishing scheme, essentially. Yeah. Before those <laughs> things really exist. Yeah, but he gives as good as he gets. He he has his own um, uh, air miles scheme, which he's, you know, very comfortable with exploiting, so, uh, I mean, he's you know, he's giving and taking. Yeah, it's horrible what what they do to him, but at the same point he's like, well, I'm just playing the game here, so I'm gonna take all of these um, uh, puddings and, 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 and make the things, which, I don't know if there's so many ways to come into how this story was written, but that was a real thing. Like, this yeah, guy did that. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. It was based on a real... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't take it quite as far, because there's just not enough time, but uh, the real guy actually um, had, like, Salvation Army and different charities do all of the labeling and mailing, like, peeling all the labels off, because it just takes so many, and he ended up donating the pudding to charity and then writing the pudding cost itself <laughs> off... On his taxes because he gave it to the charity. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, this That's guy is brilliant. my hero for wow. that 
play the bureaucratic game. Adam Sandler just uses it so that he doesn't have to pay to fly um, and that he can have that remarkably like romantic gesture. You travel for a living. Um, I can now just travel along behind you. It's either incredibly romantic or creepily stalking. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how you want to look at it. It walks the fine line throughout, which is what I love about you it, too. You were talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, again, when I decided to, to pair these movies up together, was also alive and now has, uh, has, has uh, passed on. He's not in this movie much, but, he was supposed man, to, The original script had a lot more of him yelling and screaming at people. He owns the scenes, the two scenes he has. He completely, yeah. in that yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, all the way back to Sydney, um, where he only has one scene, and for that 90 seconds, he owns the movie. He's he's really fun um, to watch in the movie, even though he's, I mean, he's barely, I guess he's the villain of the movie, but not really. I, I, I'm not really sure, other than letting him do his thing. Um most of the conflict in this movie is kind of internal, so he doesn't really have much of a role as a, a villain other than to enable some internal things. I just love the scene when he's uh, when he's getting his hair cut and <laughs> ow. as she's cutting her out. <laughs> it's just so perfectly done. Not too subtle, but not too obvious. Uh, that guy was just fantastic in every sense of the word. Was this after oh, cool. Almost Famous? Did he do this? Yes, that yeah. was after. Yeah. 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 He does have a little bit of the... Um, who, who's he playing in that? Lester Banks? Lester Banks, yeah. yeah. Um, he's got a bit of that vibe in there. Maybe it's the long hair. I don't know. But I, I do like the idea of a porn fishing scam ran out of a Utah... <laughs> Mattress, mattress store, <laughs> and the fact that he's got like a private apartment in the back of the store with, like his phone sex women grooming him. Like it's 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 like yeah, this this is not too many steps from the master and his whole ecosystem, L. Ron Hubbard ecosystem. <laughs> but it's also in what microcosm. About, yeah, what I love about that is that that confrontation at the end where. You know, like, is that is that outcome really in doubt at any point? It it seems clear to me that that guy is a, like, he he is a big deal in Provo, Utah, <laughs> right? Like, when faced with actual actual stakes, he he is a just a back downer. He's a weasel, right? And yeah. it's so fun to watch like a guy who thinks he's such hot shit, except for Provo, <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, I love, he, I love that. Like the like that's that. that is a brilliant way to articulate that. Like it's not like you know, fuck off and die, or we've had enough, or, or, or you know, it's no, it's just that's that. That's like that. That, it's like it, it's a nice just cadence to that, and the way he he kind of has to save face, but then doesn't want to go through. That's that. That's that. It's, that's that. Um, yeah. But it also fits in with the. Uh, um, uh, Adam Sandler's, you know, politeness. You know, when he says, you know, uh, before I beat the hell from you, and, and things like that. Like he can't really get down to his level. I mean, there's even that one scene where he's screaming into the phone about, "What's your name, sir?" Like he even has to throw in the sir. Yeah, so the only time say, he you know, ever, the only time is the only time he swears when he finally breaks through with the sister. Yeah, uh, the no, I, I think he, in the movie other than him berating himself from not kissing her. Right, no, then he, he, yeah, then he calls mm -hmm. himself a motherfucker. He tells Philip Seymour Hoffman to go fuck himself as well. Yeah. 
but you know, for the most part, he still can't quite shed that. Yeah. But uh, that that makes that scene, I think, even better. That even at that point, he's like, he's not telling the, you know, fuck off. He's like, just say that's that, and I let also, us agree to walk away as adults. That that weird politeness, which I I also was like very aware of watching it, is is in a way is a way of, for me anyway, it's a way of the movie bringing the sisters back into it without them being there, because that feels very much like. Hmm. That's just behavior that got drilled into him by being completely bro- broken down by his family. Like this is how you talk. These are these are the things you can say. These are the things you're not allowed to say. Yeah, and he stumbles a lot too with with just normal everyday conversation, like very food and with the uh, phone, phone, phone sex <laughs> operator. That very food is a the good Popeye callback. I didn't notice that only watching these back-to-back. That, I know. That's the song. <laughs> Everything a little, little handshake for you. Actually, both movies have a nice little iris, too. Like, there's the iris into them holding the hands. Yeah. yeah and in Popeye, there's the iris into uh, Sweet Pea, I think. Yeah, that's just a good old-timey... That's what Matt was saying earlier, that it's kind of an old-timey movie in the, Absolutely. In the sense that, they, they, that that Iris was a thing up until a certain point. Um, well, it, not too many filmmakers know how to use it. Scorsese still uses Irises pretty effectively. Like, as a, as a scene closer? Uh, in, in various ways. Closer? In various ways. It's a piece of film language that's been kind of put by the wayside because most filmmakers don't understand how to use it correctly. But it's exceptionally effective to, to close off part of the screen. Like in uh, what's his uh, in Scorsese's sequence in New York Stories, he uses a lot of iris effects. Oh, yeah. Really great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel that the freeze frame kind of... Like the four hundred, the end of four hundred blows, where it's just the the one shot, right? Yeah. Um, that that's how I feel what they did with the iris a long time ago, and now the freeze frame just doesn't. It, it's just it's more visceral and immediate and yeah. Or you know, like a lot, of, a lot of directors will try to do it more naturalistically by just sort of closing the frame down with a doorway or something. Other other ways of doing it, like in the like in the searchers, there's that you know that shot of the doorway where it's yeah. basically cut off a lot of screen. It, it's there's lots of ways to do it, but it is this very effective way to use the real estate to kind of vary up the um, the perspective on stuff, and 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 it doesn't get used enough. I love that scene with the iris in this movie. I think it's great. Yeah, it it also does feel very like it doesn't like it's not a look at what I'm doing. It it is a little, just it's just a little moment. Like it's not designed to be a huge moment, right? Like it's just yeah. a, it's more to be cute than anything else, is it not? Yeah, I think so. And it's just it's a button on the scene. Yeah, yeah, it's and yeah. That it's music in the back, like that really cute sort of ukulele yeah. strum. Yeah, plus that's another that. one of those really long takes, right? Yeah, yeah, but that scene the whole right? movie <laughs> outside of one or two scenes is composed of like yeah. more even by P.T. Anderson standards. But this movie going is long to that, going to that iris at the end of that really long take almost like enhances how choreographed that take is. I suppose it's like mm-hmm. yeah, that's it. Um, like that not only did I did I plan out this really long shot, but I planned it out to the point where I knew that I was going to be able to iris in on their hands at this exact screen location, and it just sort of like creates this nice sort of formalism in that in that scene. Okay. Um I I 
I don't think in Punch Drunk Love, though, by P.T. Anderson standards, like, if you look at the shot in Magnolia, for instance, the, the, the or Boogie Nights, the beginning, um, I don't feel any of the long takes in Punch Drunk Love feel like just him showing off for the sake of... Like, right. they, they don't call attention. They're like the... Um, there's, a, there's a fascinating uh, visual essay. It's on Vimeo on... on Long takes, and but he fo- the, the 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 essayist focused on Steven Spielberg because his takes are not that long, but and they are always designed to be invisible rather than woo look at me I'm doing yeah. all this in one take. I feel in the earlier Paul Thomas Anderson films, they are definitely designed for you to be aware that there are these massive whoa look at what I'm juggling here takes. I don't think there's a scene in, like you say it's a nice finish to that sequence, but I don't find any of the one take scenes in Punch Drunk Love call attention to themselves as being right. this big... No, they're just... Thing. They don't do it like they do in Boogie Nights where everybody... No, oh, that's, that's Scorsese-esque. Yeah, they feel entirely, you know, like the, the natural way that you would want to shoot those scenes. The scene, Even the scene where he comes into the party, that's that shot's really long. Yeah. Where they're calling him gay boy and stuff, that's like a unbroken take. It's long. But again, it's also effective. Like you said, it doesn't call attention to itself, but there's a reason why he's using those single takes. Because immediately, you know, you walk into the house, boom, you feel it, and it doesn't take long before he's kicking windows in. Yeah. Yeah, I also I also I forgot who mentioned uh, Jacques Tati with, uh, you know, Popeye and everything, but I, I definitely got that vibe a little bit. Like, that's... Like, I don't think he has so much, you know, the whole Altman and Scorsese thing going on with Punch Drunk Love, but just, like, little little things like the, the geometry of the grocery store and, like, just picking up on the naturalism and kind of, like, the, the, the just the environments themselves and just focusing on them remind me a little bit of how just, like, Tati would, would, would make great use of just objects and surrounding environments and sort of have, um, you know, a, a character inhabit these little worlds... I, t- I just find it also interesting, like, boy, that grocery store, there's nobody else shopping there ever. <laughs> well, and I think that's partly because Adam Sandler is, like, agoraphobic. I mean, he, yeah. he's really uncomfortable. Like, when he runs and gets the harmonium, and when he, even, like, this is his place of work. This is the one place where he does get away from most things, and he can just relax until the phone starts ringing. Um, and yet, yeah, he's, they love to dwarf his character in these big open spaces. I mean, yeah, there's scenes where they box him in, but I think there's an, they're equally balanced with scenes where he is, you know, on the street in Los Angeles, and it just the way P.T. Anderson shoots, they're really open. I, I mm-hmm. There's not a lot of... I guess this is Robert Ellswood again, uh, who, who shoots most of his movies. Not a lot of cinematographers can get that big... Wally Pfister's very good at it. Like, get that really, like, whoa, this is just open. Terrence Malick's... Mm-hmm. Uh, Cinematographers tend to grab it as well. Like they don't look like, and maybe that's because they use real locations. I, it might just simply be using real locations instead of yeah. back. Can I can I throw a question out to everybody? You did because I, I genuinely am curious about this. I don't really have a take on this. Why do you think he went into business making whimsical novelty plungers? Because that is what an Adam Sandler movie is. Like that. <laughs> is a business that Adam Sandler would be running in Grandma's Boy. Like that to you me. You think that's all that is? I, I that's that's what I took it to be. Um, because it, it is. Yeah, it's it's a random 
it's a random thing. Um, Except they have this neat visual quality when they're kind of all lined up on the table and stuff in those tracking mm-hmm. shots, and they like there's they're they're in a lot of the shots. I don't know. Is there some? I feel like there's got to be some connection to the character and the family and all the rest of it. Like, why would he make? <laughs> well, if it's he's such a weird stuck, thing to make. If he's stuck, how do you unplug a toilet? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a movie about being stuck and freeing yourself, it's Thank a reasonable you. That was the answer tool. I was looking for. Thank you, Kurt. <laughs> well, he was on hold, so it's the same kind of thing, right? I love so he... that sequence where he's demonstrating to his customer that the <laughs> the new unbreakable ones, and he's very good. He totally, like, as a businessman, he's pretty good at like whether they whether he's telling the truth or not. When he's like, "Oh, that must be the old batch," <laughs> like yep. one of those new batches, he just smoothly because you know anyone that's given these sorts of sales demos, whatever is gonna go wrong is gonna go wrong, <laughs> and so your ability to smoothly get out of that is really the pitch, and he does it like. From his business point of view and his air miles pudding point of view, he's, you know, when it's not dealing with people, it's dealing with, like, his own little controlled world, he's pretty good. It's just when he has to interact with his family and, and, and life that he's not so good. Uh, but I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I'm not sure there's an answer. I just I find it a fascinating detail. It never really gets talked about when people talk about this movie, but it's such an odd... It's as equally odd as the pudding. What's also odd is just naming Louise Guzman's characters Lance, the whitest <laughs> name you can give for yeah. an actor. <laughs> oh, the chair oh, broke. I, I love that moment. Yeah, that's, that's so brilliant. And and also his facial expression when, when Lena comes back to ask him out in front of uh, Lance <laughs> yeah. and the other ones. Just his sort of frozen expression is one of the funniest things <laughs> ever, I think. I just, just like that he brilliant. comes in the next day also wearing a suit and then stops. Yeah, he, yeah. he just yeah. does it once. <laughs> I never caught that till this viewing. I'm glad you pointed that out. Because I'm like, yeah, there's one scene in the middle. And then he's like, no, no, no. But let's, no, but let's he, all be clear. He does the thing where he's like, see, I'm also wearing a suit. Like, he sort of points it out. And yep. then there's yep. no reaction. And then he just doesn't bother wearing the suit again. <laughs> he just goes back. Yeah. Uh, but let's be clear. Luis Guzman is a national treasure. Like, whether he's just doing stock character work in something like Pluto Nash, or whether he's in the P.T. Anderson stuff, or in the Soderbergh stuff, or whatever, he's... The scene in Out of Sight, where he's Uh, being arrested, and he still cannot get over the fact that the magician just uses fake legs for the gag, and he's (laughs) pulled away, fake legs! I just... just cracks. He never gets old. That guy never gets old no matter what he's doing and yeah. even though he's like you could almost get angry that he's underused in this movie but because this is a movie of everything being just pared down to that one essential thing it's fine it's fine he's exactly used right yeah I, I remember when I, when I first saw this in a theater I, I, I adore Magnolia Magnolia oddly enough is comfort food for me uh, I was upset because this is half the length and I was like ah. Oh. It's only 90 minutes of P.T. Anderson. I was a little bit bummed. But, you know, after so many viewings now, I say, no, this is absolutely the perfect length. Yeah. It's the one I've rewatched the most probably because of its length. Well, it's funny. I I watched it. I saw this film at at TIFF in whatever year it was released. So, I guess... 2002. And have not watched it again until today. And... That was on purpose. Some movies are too good to watch again. 
You want you want to experience it for the first time ten years later. I, I often if a movie is that good, I want to just freeze it in my mind and never go back. And yet, I might this do movie... that with upstream color, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, that works. But this movie gets better for me almost every time I watch it, and and just watch it recently with uh, with Kieran and and you know having him jump at those brilliantly loud car crashes and getting the jokes and knowing that this is a little bit different. It just made it even that much better. Well, I do put P.T. Anderson in kind of that class of filmmaker as someone like. Stanley Kubrick in the sense that his movies are so dense that they they bear fruit, new fruit, every time you watch them. I mean, you may get one thing that can be interpreted. Like when someone's doing a Room 237, like Bob was mentioning earlier, on Punch Drunk Love, that's not terribly surprising to me because just the way he... He's very careful in how he shoots and how he assembles, and um, things that might seem shaggy and unnecessary on one viewing come into focus on other viewings. I feel that even with even with Inherent Vice, which is the mm-hmm. one that's playing recently, I, I mean, I've gone back and watched it a second time, and that thing snaps together like a fucking rubber band. Yep. I mean, it is it it just all just boom. It just feels every anxiety problem I had with that movie on the first viewing was gone on the second viewing. It, it just is, it's quite marvelous. Like, you're not worried about the plot, you can start right. focusing on how all the other elements start to gel together, and you realize this movie's not entropy going out, it's actually collapsing into a nice object as you watch it. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, <laughs> and I just hope that this guy continues to get to make movies in whatever period or genre or uh, whatever he does. Um, I'm sure he has another romantic comedy in him as well, and I would like to see that as much as I like this one. I would have no problem with him going and doing another. Yeah, I want to see that right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really really loved Inherent Vice, too. I mean, as soon as I sort of took it as a modern-day big sleep where the plot is kind of almost irrelevant, like you said, I, I, I was with it on my first viewing. So, yeah, I can't wait to see it again as well. Well, I think and, unless uh, anyone else has uh, anything to say, uh, final thoughts on Punch Drug Glove or Popeye? Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson rules. Suck it, Matt Gamble. Okay, that had So I want to remind listeners they can drop by um, the movie club podcast dot blogspot dot com. That's where you can find all the posts, all the episodes, and comment on this show. There'll be links and whatnot from all the various sites and things, but I believe comments will be turned off. So you have to go to the movie club podcast dot blogspot dot com to leave your thoughts on this episode. And uh, we're appreciative to have you. Before we go around the room um, with our last goodbyes and letting every, everyone know where you can be found online and various social media and whatnot, we should talk a little bit about the next episode. Hopefully it won't be a year. Um, well, as the, the person who tries to wrangle these things together, I'm I'm hoping for a late March, early April for uh, for the Ooh. next episode. So that's by by this podcast standards, that's that's pretty fast turnaround. So that's ambitious. Which will be discussing uh, Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer as well as John Frankenheimer's 
the train. So you go and figure out on your own how those two movies connect. Um, Kurt, were those yours? Was that your uh, just yeah, off the top of your head, your wide curation? Screen, wide screen cinema was invented for snakes and trains. I believe uh, this these movies have both. Um, so yeah, let's let's we haven't done a train uh, a train one, and I the train is not a movie that's easy to find. I mean, I mean by that I mean the John Frankenheimer movie, and I believe it's a really underrated movie that people should see. And uh, so if nothing else. Um, uh, pulling that one out of uh, and and dust dusting it off, um, and and contrasting it against what I think is quite a exceptional blockbuster movie that was also somewhat ignored. Um, I, I think it might the next uh, episode might be more of a a defense kind of ex- episode on these two films that maybe not didn't get the spotlight as much as they deserved. Very well. Um, so until next episode let's uh head around the room and just say goodbye and anything you'd like to plug starting with bob uh yeah bob turbo at row three and eternal sunshine of the logical mind as well as at the logical mind on twitter um that's it for me right now yeah i'm over at uh directors club podcast.com and uh letterboxd twitter instant gym and writing some music-related pieces over at Row3.com lately, which has been great. And uh, thanks, everyone, for having me on. And speaking of music, we should mention, you did contribute the opening Popeye number to this episode, if anyone's wondering. That's where that came from. <laughs> so thank you for playing So you can play me. That's awesome. Kurt? Um, yeah, you can find me at uh, Row3. I'm kind of happy that there's enough people writing and, and podcasting and whatever in the kind of cloud that is row three, I guess, that uh, we can do one of these shows kind of like a, a little, um, you know, in-house kind of show. Um, uh, so, but you can find me at, uh, at at row three or at Twitch Film, and I'm on Twitter at Triflick. And uh, was there more, Kurt? No, nope, there's not more. You you think there might be? There and always there often is. is. <laughs> but I feel there is more. There is more. I feel you almost should have paused longer because if there's a theme on this show, it's I say something, no one knows what I just said, and then there's a baffling. Well, we silence. know. We know what you said. We're all afraid. To, we can't top it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't oh, buy that for a second. That's generous of you to say so, but I don't believe it. Fair enough. Uh, so, so uh, mainly you can find most of the things that I output at mamo.ca, which is the home of Mamo, the long-running podcast I do with my partner Matt Brown. Uh, that is hosted on Row Three, and uh, as well, um, in the coming month or so, you'll be able to find me on another podcast on the Modern Superior Network, modernsuperior.com. That podcast is called "Let's Scare Matthew Price to Death." <laughs> And uh, is a podcast where guests give me scary movies and uh, that they think are scary enough to possibly kill me, and then we and then we talk about it. So uh, that'll be coming up in within the next uh, three or four weeks. It'll be a uh, short run, apparently. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll we'll see <laughs> if anything actually succeeds. There is a five dollar prize if I die. So uh, <laughs> plus um, bragging so- rights. Yes, yes. So that's, and on Twitter, that is at uh, ScaredyMattCast, is the Twitter handle for that show. And my Twitter handle is MattMovies. And that's it. All right. Fair enough. That's that mattress, man. 
<laughs> that's that is that. That is that. Uh, and uh, if everyone's really been enjoying my thoughts on these two films, my name's Andrew James. I'm also at row three. Um, <laughs> He's been turning all the knobs behind the scene and generally, uh, generally uh, roping this uh, um, Google Hangout together. Yeah, more or less. We'll see how it comes together. So. Uh, once again, everybody, the uh, the URL is movieclubpodcast.blogspot.com. Drop by there. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next episode on the Movie Club Podcast. Cheers. 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 Root beer. <laughs> <laughs>